This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome, everybody. I'm here with David Swanson, Leah Bolger, and Greta Zaro from World Beyond War. We are four of the people who meet regularly to talk about what we do at World Beyond War. We are going to cover some basic issues and basic topics that we often discuss when we talk about the direction that this organization goes in. And we're, we're going to spend this episode of the podcast trying to deal with some real fundamental basic questions about the anti-war movement. So first, we've got the co-founder and executive director of World Beyond War, David Swanson. Hi, Mike. And the president of the World Beyond War board, Leah Bolger. Hello, everyone. A familiar voice here, our organizing director, Greta Zaro. Thanks, Mark. And I am Mark Elliott Stein. This is the fifth episode of the World Beyond War podcast. Here we go. We've all been feeling quite alarmed by the amount of activity around the world that we as an anti-war organization have to be aware of. The build up to a new state of war between the United States and Iran, recent activities on the southern border with Mexico, which seems to me like we are creating a state of war on the southern border of the United States where there was not before, some really concerning developments with Venezuela, horrific activities in Gaza, and not to be pessimistic, but it is really very hard to be an anti-war organization and try to cope on a daily basis with all the news and developments from these areas while also keeping our focus on the bigger picture of not just responding to crises, but ending war itself, to actually try to find ways to address the major problem of war as a whole. David, how do we do that? Well, I don't know if I have all the answers. Uh, a couple, a, a few points occur to me. One is uh, that increasingly, as we're developing active chapters around the world, uh, we can address crises both in the, in the areas threatened with war and in coordination with uh, the, the, our chapters in the countries threatening war, uh, as well as with the rest of the world uh, where people are, are interested and active. Um, I, I think what World Beyond War has wanted to do and to some extent successfully done from the beginning is use crises as educational opp opportunities. That is, don't ignore them, don't disengage, uh, attempt to prevent looming uh, horrors, uh, but use them also as opportunities to advance uh, people's understanding of what is creating this situation in the first place and how do we avoid creating uh, similar crises. Don't, you know, don't fall into the who, who attacked some ship in the Persian Gulf, and if it was Iran, then Iran must be bombed, and if it wasn't, then somebody else must be bombed. Don't, don't take the corporate media's questions and give the best possible answer. Change to appropriate questions, like how do we avoid this madness in which countries threaten the ultimate crime of war? Uh, and, and even more so, don't misuse crises to argue, you know, we shouldn't have this war because we need to be prepared for a better war, or <laughs> we should have a congressional war, not a presidential war. Or I, I, I literally moments ago saw that uh, as we're recording this, uh, there is a, a, a no war with Iran caucus being announced uh, by some of the very best uh, members of the U.S. Congress. And they literally announced that their intention is to avoid any war with Iran on Trump slash Bolton terms. 
I'm sorry, on whose terms do we want a war on Iran? You know, so, yeah. so the, the point is to talk better and strategize better around crises as examples of an institution that needs to be abolished as a whole and replaced with other systems and structures and how those would be employed in this crisis, et cetera. You know, wow. it's, it's also, it, you talk about crises and, and war, uh, there doesn't have to be a war to be a crisis. And, and, there, and, you know, Mexico, you says maybe like a war, but there are certainly lots of things that are very concerning, um, that are unjust and inhumane and, and sanctions for one thing are considered an act of war, but, but the American public does not know that, or they certainly aren't told that, that we are already uh, inflicting major harm to, to several countries with our sanctions. So, you know, World Beyond War cannot uh, address each one. We don't have the capacity to do that. And, you know, there are hundreds, thousands of other organizations that, that react in that way. So, I mean, David put it in, in perspective on, on how we can use these things as, as learning opportunities, but, but still react, um, you know, and, and put out statements, uh, whatever. But our basic work is going to be uh, addressing the, the underlying causes and how we can shift from a, a, a world that is, is, is uh, a system that's, that's governed by the threat of war and violence and, and turn it to one that's based on diplomacy and international uh, uh, mediation, that kind of thing. Greta, any thoughts? Yeah, just sort of responding to your sense of kind of feeling depressed by all of these upcoming crises and along the lines of what David was saying, I think what keeps me motivated is all of our chapters around the world who are focusing on debunking the myths of war and throughout all of this up and down and as new things arise, our chapter's core focus is really um, educating people about the problem of the institution of war and its alternatives. And so that's what keeps me inspired is working with all of these volunteers around the world to help them organize these educational events in their communities. You know, I, I think that's a great point and one that really personally resonates with me is that working on working with an anti-war organization can can help us defeat that feeling of helplessness. And that that's probably to one in one sense why all of us are here, or one reason all of us are here is that when we are engaged, as you are, Greta, with the chapters, and, and as I am, say, with the website, and as each of us are with the various things that we do, Leah, you work on, um, on the No Foreign Bases campaign. David, you work on everything. That gives each of us a feeling of empowerment or agency, I think. At the same time, when we step back and ask the hard question, how's it going? <laughs> you know, how, what kind of progress are we making? It's actually tough for me to, to feel that we are making progress. And when I say we, I don't mean the four of us. I don't mean world beyond war. I mean the planet. I mean the world. <laughs> you know, it, it does seem to me that there has been a, a setback in the past couple of years. And I'm talking not only about the, the, the rise to power of Donald Trump, but also about Brexit, about what many of us call fascist governments taking power in various countries around the world, or at least strongman or authoritarian governments, and of course, actual, actual threats of war. Do you perceive the same thing? And how does that 
affect the way that you approach what we do as anti-war activists? Well, personally, I, I, I vacillate one day a feeling like just pulling the covers over my head and saying, this is too hard. And then the next day thinking, oh, we, we've got to do something. We are, we are powerful when we work together. I know something when I'm speaking to groups uh, or trying to uh, asking somebody if they'll sign our declaration of peace, I, I tell them that we have people in 175 countries who've signed this. And when I think of the potential to organize people, when we have them around the world, literally around the world, uh, that gets me very excited and very positive. And, you know, we would not have been able to do this kind of, of uh, uh, reach, reach out, outreach um, if we didn't have the internet. We used to have phone trees and, and you know, and <laughs> snail mail and, and all that thing. Uh, but now our, our capabilities are so much bigger to organize in a, in a grand way. So that I think is very exciting. And you see mass gatherings of activists around the world. One thing I think is disheartening, and I, I don't know why this isn't happening, is that I just saw like a million people in the street in Hong Kong, or you see thousands and thousands of people in Europe, you know, in the streets. The United States cannot seem to gather the critical mass of people to even make the headlines. And I don't know why that is, that in the United States, that tactic isn't working anymore. Yeah. During the um, women's marches, which were, I believe, January 2017, January 2018, we did have a few moments where there were these kinds of massive uprisings or massive protests, but very few, right? And I don't feel that that movement is growing. You know, when, when Occupy got started, I thought that was going to be a tipping point. That was going to really seriously change things. And and uh, it did for a while. And I don't think it, it is anymore. I think that whether things are going better or worse is, is one of the biggest distractions we're up against, uh, because I don't think it should determine our work. And I don't think we should spend any time on being depressed or being euphoric. Uh, I think we should just engage in working, which not only, as Mark just said, gives us a better mental attitude, but, you know, studies have proven that getting involved in activism tends to make you uh, happier. So if you're worried about your personal mental well-being, get engaged and do the work. Uh, but I think we're, we're up against, you know, not just the usual problems that the United States is a vastly bigger place uh, than these other countries. Uh, Washington, D.C. is a pretty small city in the United States, and uh, most people are overworked and have no time and so forth. But we're also up against all this propaganda of disempowerment and demobilization and telling people they have no impact. Uh, and so you can do a march about guns, but the guns will still be there and do a march about about women's rights, but the fascist, rapist uh, elected officials will still be there, or elected or otherwise, will still be there. Uh, and this is what people have been telling each other about peace activism for for much longer than some of these other issues. And it's ridiculously, absurdly, laughably false. Uh, the, the powers that be pay very close attention to peace activism and other kinds of activism, no matter what they try to pretend. And occasionally they blurt out that it was 
public opposition that stopped the massive bombing of, of Syria in 2013, for example, uh, and without a, a mass march. It, it can be done with a mass march, but also through phone calls and emails and showing up at public events and town halls uh, and letters to the editor and so forth and so on. So that, you know, during the last insane presidential election season, uh, there was very, very little about foreign policy. And now you have some of the primary candidates getting most of the attention vastly better on foreign policy. And some of them like Bernie Sanders, because we specifically push them to get better on foreign policy. Uh, now, other factors beyond our control, who's the incumbent and what's happening in the world and how many how many candidates are running and so forth. But uh, still, you, you, you see that uh, and you see the public refusing to support uh, a war on Iran while at the same time, on the other hand, uh, the public, a third of the U.S. is apparently saying it would be fine to nuke North Korea and kill a million people. So, so there are, you know, public attitudes that that need to be radically changed rapidly. But, you know, you look at you look at the New York Times asking presidential candidates questions, and they're mostly awful and trivial. But they actually ask, "Would there be troops in Afghanistan at the end of your first year?" which is, you know, that the rarest of things, a concrete question with a substantive answer. And some of them answered it right. And, and, and they're all against the death penalty. All of them are against the death penalty. We, you know, some, some things change so fast we forget that Obama wasn't, that nobody in, in the White House up until now, as far as I know, was. You know, so uh, there are things that change fast and sometimes so fast that we don't even see it. That's a great note of optimism, and I'm glad to hear that you perceive it that way. I often do as well. I hope I don't ever sound like a pessimist. I actually do believe that we will defeat the disease of war. I'm just waiting. What, what the hell is taking us so long is my question. I wonder if the types of movements that we're seeing that, that Leah was talking about in Europe, for instance, Extinction Rebellion, what we just saw in Hong Kong, I wonder if that type of activity will eventually be what pushes us to the, the tipping point that we need. I've been thinking about how the Vietnam War was opposed by a national mobilization. There was in the United States a series of, they were called moratoriums, and they weren't, were not quite a national strike, but they were something like a national strike. And I think there was a sense in the United States that we were moving towards a national strike and that this did make a big difference in in turning the the united states foreign policy against the disaster of that war i'm waiting for that to happen here i've been uh, on my meager little twitter account for you know the couple of thousand people who see what i write i talk about national strike often where is our national strike thoughts on on that type of possibility would, would something like that actually offer a path well, that's what I was thinking about with Occupy. I yeah. thought, this is it. This is it. This is going to be the national uprising that we need. And I was so confident of that, that that was going to be the tripwire. And so I, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be to, to push. I think, you know, people are so afraid of hurting their own interests and, and doing some kind of a national uh, strike. You know, people have enough trouble... Uh, on their own uh, plate, worrying about their own uh, families and, and careers and, and, and uh, 
paying the rent, um, that they, they can't have the luxury of, of, of you know, striking. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, it's funny. Occupy, go ahead, David. You know, Occupy was more than national, much more than national, and, and the solution needs to be uh, global. Uh, and, and I think uh, more so than, than any of these wars. I mean, I think one of these wars is going to destroy us all uh, or we are going to put an end to the institution of war. Uh, and I think that what might get us there in terms of public activism is the environmental crisis and yeah. the understanding among people that you have to act globally, uh, even if you can only think locally, uh, and, and that war is a major part of the environmental crisis, and that the nuclear apocalypse crisis uh, is an evil sister of the of the environmental climate crisis. Uh, I mean, that's that's a possibility of of an awakening uh, and seeing all kinds of creative action, including people taking risks and making sacrifices for the future of of the earth in a in a way that we haven't seen before. Uh, there, there is that possibility because we've waited too long and the climate crisis has begun uh, and so many people are actually seeing it and experiencing it. Yeah, I would push back on what you were saying, Mark, in terms of that you feel that things are snowballing and getting worse. I feel like in my lifetime, I've seen much more in, in increase in awareness, increase in activism, um, increase in you know young people wanting to do something good for the world and we've seen for example you know the rise of the organic movement and the rise of veganism and vegetarianism and working on farms we have a lot of young people going into sustainable farming so I think that there is at least what I've seen this this growth in awareness and perhaps young people are taking different tactics than the old tactics and I see a more hands-on approach where people are, you know, changing their food habits or changing their lifestyle habits, changing their careers, perhaps more than the, the symbolic um, actions of the past, like protesting. I see more of a, of a hands-on approach. And I think that's where we see actions like Standing Rock, um, where people, you know, physically went to the camp and lived there and built tiny homes and natural building and, you know, created a community. And then we see that with the divestment movement, too, which is very um, sort of actionable and hands-on and something that people can do in their personal lives and their communities at their schools. And I think that's where we have opportunities for change-making. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Greta. And another, um, I'm just thinking of another movement where we've seen real progress is uh, LGBTQ, um, you know, from when I was a kid and just at my lifetime, that has changed immensely. Um, uh, you know, the society has changed. And, and so uh, I think that's another area where young people are really involved as well. I, I think the flip side, the downside uh, to be a downer here on what Greta said is that changing to tactics where you can actually accomplish something uh, implies the, the indisputable truth uh, that we're sort of giving up on changing anything through the U.S. government or some other national governments uh, because uh, we perceive ourselves to have been such failures in that regard. So we'll do things locally, you know, and the problem with that, of course, is that everyone who's enlightened uh, can 
have their organic garden uh, and the planet still be destroyed by enormous policies of governments like the US government and the Chinese government and so forth. Uh, and, and so if we can, if we can harness that local action and, and build it into something bigger than a collection of local actions uh, and affect global policy, uh, we may save ourselves, um, you know, and, and so I think using, uh, when, when we had a divestment campaign here in Charlottesville, uh, we used the so-called old-fashioned symbolic actions of holding a rally and getting lots of people to turn out, uh, you know, hand in glove with the, the divestment demand. Uh, and the, the same is done with closing bases and with education and everything else that we do. Uh, so I think we have to try all of these things uh, and we have to try them locally, regionally, nationally and globally because um, otherwise we're not going to, you know, we're not going to survive. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I don't mean to imply that it's one or the other. I call it the two-prong approach. And if you've read any of my work or seen any of my speeches, I usually talk about this two-prong approach of making change, you know, in your personal life, on the ground, hands-on, but then also doing that policy work as well. I bet that is something we all agree on, that we have to do grassroots and we have to do top-down and we have to be optimists and we have to be pessimists. We have to do all of it, and, and we are. We're trying. I have a question. I am interested in many, many issues, you know, racism and homelessness and women's health choices and, and climate change and, uh, you know, myriad things I'm interested in. But I found that I've, I really have to focus on just one. For me, I mean, all my energy is put into World Beyond War. So I'm wondering what it is that persuades, I mean, in, in my case, I think my 20 years in being in the military uh, really, um, you know, helps uh, inform my views now about working against war or finding, you know, a way to dismantle it. So that's personally why I think this issue is one that I've latched onto and made my focus. What, what is it about anti-war that, that, resonates the most with you that you've prioritized it um, particularly when it seems right now that the rest of the world it has is focusing on climate change and uh, rightly so it's, it's critical but so what what caused you or, or what factors uh, what were you thinking about that's made you prioritize anti-war work yeah, I mean, I think David was was talking about this earlier when he was talking about the climate change impacts of war and militarism and the pollution that is caused by the institution of war. And so for me, that's really what appealed to me about World Beyond War and the anti-war movement is that really, if we look at it, war and militarism is at the intersection of all of these other issues, climate change, environmental pollution, water contamination, the erosion of civil rights, the militarization of the police. I mean, all of these social and ecological issues that we're concerned about, really, it comes down to war as the root cause. And then on top of that, the fact that we're spending $2 trillion a year on war and preparation for war, which is diverting money that could be used for so many other things, whether that's education or healthcare or job creation or fixing the lead pipes in this country. Um, 
so many other issues could be resolved if we redirected military spending. So that's, that's why I'm working for World Beyond War, um, because it's really the root cause. Uh, well, I agree with everything Greta said. Uh, I don't, uh, I, you know, I don't uh, want to have a contest uh, over what's the most important thing to work on with everybody, because I think uh, a lot of people work on areas where they have particular expertise or emotional involvement or, uh, or, or reasons to work on those things. Uh, and our biggest problem is that vast majority of people who aren't doing anything. Uh, so anybody who's doing good activism, I'm all for it. Uh, but I think that uh, opposing war appealed to me pretty early on uh, because it seems like the most transparently evil and awful thing that humanity does to itself, mass killing people. Uh, what could be worse? Uh, I mean, my thinking is in line with Andrew Carnegie when he set up the Carnegie Endowment for Peace and said, eliminate war and then have a board meeting and find the second most evil thing and start eliminating that. And of course, they've long since abandoned the first project. They'll never get to the second one. But that, I think, is basic morality. That and the fact that when people start talking war, they lose their damn minds and they can't think. And I'm in favor of clear thinking. Uh, you know, and when I worked at, when I was working on issues of poverty and minimum wage and housing and predatory lending and 9-11 happened, and all of a sudden everybody just knew without even asking each other, they just went around telling every, anybody who was stupid enough to ask, like me, that now was not the time to restore value to the minimum wage or to do anything decent in the world. Now was not the time. It was wartime. And I said, well, Why? Why is that? Why, when it's wartime, can you not do anything decent? I don't understand why. And they could never explain it to me. Uh, and, uh, you know, and as I looked at, at that problem of propaganda and mindlessness and that, you know, we're scrabbling for little crumbs for housing and food and, and wages, well, this mammoth quantity of loot is being dumped into this project of mass murder so, you know, maybe we shouldn't focus on the crumbs under the table. Maybe we should climb up on the damn table and rearrange the dinner. Uh, and so it, it seemed like in some ways it is, it is a priority, certainly in terms of public budget in the United States and, and a number of other countries. It has to be the priority. It has to be where we go and get the money for the things we need, including climate. So what you're talking about is the money, the budget. Absolutely. That is, that is, uh, I think the overriding uh, issue that if we, if we stop the money, we could fix so many other things. So what role do you think capitalism plays in uh, the United States going to war? I, I mean, I've heard many people say that, that that's the root cause of it. Uh, what, what do you think? Well, you know, many, many years ago, I was struck by Barbara Ehrenreich's answer to this question, which was, uh, in, in brief summary, war was around long before uh, capitalism. It's, it's an oversimplification to hunt for some single cause of a problem in some other problem. That is to say, yes, capitalism and war interact. Yes, we've got to fix capitalism or replace it. Uh, yes, war is a problem. Uh, but, 
you know, to say, well, first we have to go deal with capitalism and then we can deal with war, I, I think misses the fact that, I mean, uh, most countries on earth do not engage in anything like the effort put into war by the United States. Uh, and many of them would be called by almost everybody capitalist. Uh, and, and so if you can have a capitalist country uh, you know, that invests less than 1% what the United States does in war and hasn't started a war itself in centuries, that's the kind of capitalist country I would like to have in re with regard to war. Uh, needless to say, uh, there are massive problems with, with capitalism everywhere, uh, and in particular in certain countries. Uh, and the interaction is extreme. The, the wars are fought for profits. Uh, the wars create profits, etc. But I want to avoid the sort of, you know, first we, first we have to get rid of bribery, or first we have to get rid of capitalism, or first we have to get rid of racism. Uh, I think we have to listen to Dr. King, who got this right so many decades back now, and said we're going to need to take on racism and extreme materialism and militarism together. And as uh, the Poor People's Campaign now likes to add in environmental destruction uh, as a fourth one, and sometimes there's a fifth one, but I think we have to take on these interlocking evils together uh, rather than prioritizing just one of them. There was a time where I was actually speaking at a rally and I said something about the need to end war at all costs or, you know, as our most urgent need. And actually somebody came up right after me and said, I disagree with that. You know, until we have economic justice, we need war. Well, I, of course, think uh, that people who advocate the use of war and violence on behalf of good causes and in anti-imperial struggles and so forth uh, are, are misguided, are, are incorrect morally and factually, uh, and that the evidence is overwhelming uh, that campaigns to right such wrongs are more effective, more likely to succeed, and those successes almost certain to be far longer lasting uh, when those campaigns are principally nonviolent. Uh, and, and, and so I, on the World Beyond War website, I think I just posted a, a review of, of a movie about uh, what happened in Bougainville uh, Island uh, in the Pacific a couple decades back uh, where violence had been tried with all its typical glory uh, for, for a decade uh, with failure after failure uh, until an actual peacekeeping team, uh, unlike most things that are called peacekeeping teams, was sent in uh, with guitars instead of guns, unarmed, uh, and succeeded in, uh, in making peace uh, and facilitating the people there making peace. So I, I think, you know, this is, uh, I know, Mark, you, you've uh, asked in the past about divides within the peace movement. This is a divide between those who want to use nonviolence against war and those who want to use war against war, which is exactly what the Pentagon wants to do, use war supposedly against war. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a factual question that can be looked at uh, and the evidence is overwhelming. But I, but I also think that such divides uh, are of incredibly little importance in comparison with the problem 
of general disempowerment and disengagement, people doing nothing, people focused on elections and partisanship, uh, the war normalization in our culture. It's a, it's a cultural problem, a communications problem, not, not a problem that, you know, the, the few hundred of us over here are not in complete agreement with the other few hundred of us over there. It's, you know, so I don't want to overemphasize the importance of these divides. I've learned to, instead of say capitalism, say corrupt capitalism. And I actually make a practice of that because the only capitalism I have ever known in my lifetime is corrupt capitalism. The United States government, the largest military force in the world, does not pay for its own expenses with taxation. You know, our entire economy is really not based on what anybody would consider to be common sense, realistic economic principles like paying for what you spend. So I like to point out, and I wonder, Leah, if this helps to answer what you're asking at all. I like to point out that we've never seen anything like real free market capitalism. We really have what seems to me to be a rigged economy, which is what Occupy was all about. So maybe that helps. Does that help at all, Leah? With, with yeah, I understand your example, but I think the the most the, the thing that's the most egregious to me about capitalism is that it the it is profit at all cost. It doesn't matter how much value it contributes to society. It is what makes money for shareholders, and yeah. when you do that, when that's the overriding motivator. Then, then morals and values and, and humanity go by the wayside. And, and, and people are, are able to invest in, in Boeing and Grumman and not feel, uh, you know, not feel bad about it because that's what's making them money. And that's what's going to be hard about divestment because if you have a union that's all, got all their money invested in, in, in Boeing, they're going to be reluctant to take it out because they're going to lose money and they have to worry about their own personal interest of, of getting by. But it's that profit motive, I think, that's the most heinous part of capitalism. Greta may want to speak to um, divestment as well, but I, I just want to point out that we successfully persuaded my city government uh, here in Charlottesville, Virginia, and as we're doing in other places around the world, that they could take their money out of companies like Boeing and not lose money. Uh, so I don't think we should uh, state as some sort of eternal truth that if you take your money out of Boeing, you will lose money. We actually made the case to them that there are other places where you can invest money other than weapons companies uh, where you are virtually guaranteed to make at least as much profit uh, as you were making from the weapons company. So that was one of of sort of two very different arguments we used in combination. The other being that you have a responsibility uh, that goes beyond short-term profits uh, to not very distant uh, looming destruction of the, of the ecosystem uh, and possibly the lives of, uh, of your constituents. Uh, and so it, as we're trying to get local and regional and national governments to, to think in those broader terms, to look out a decade ahead uh, and understand their fiduciary responsibility to include not killing people. Uh, we also can use the argument that in fact, there are many investment funds where money can be put uh, where it doesn't have to go in weapons and, uh, and they can still make their short-term profits. 
Yeah, I'm glad you said that, David. I was going to say that as well, that I've, I've seen research and, and data that shows it, that it can be just as profitable to be investing in socially responsible funds. So we shouldn't perpetuate that myth um, that it's not profitable when you divest. No, I don't, I don't mean to say that I believe that. Uh, I'm just saying I think that's going to be a, 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 you know, a hard argument for people to believe. I agree. I think you're right. And uh, it's just going to take some education and a little bit of trust. I just want to mention in terms of putting up an anti-war and, and pro-environmental platform on, on the side of a healthy economy, that this is largely what the Green New Deal here in the United States is about, is about um, addressing environmental concerns with a focus on jobs and economy. And that's why I think the Green New Deal is, is brilliant and why I'm 100% behind it is because really because I think it does what what you we were all just saying, which is which is emphasize the positive economic benefits of better policies and more humane policies. I'd like to ask David or Greta if you have questions that you would you think are worth bringing up in this discussion. Well, I would I would ask uh, Leah why closing bases is, uh, is an appropriate campaign as a step toward abolishing all war. And I would ask uh, Greta the same question on uh, divestment. Greta, why don't you go first since we were just talking about divestment? Yeah, well, as we were talking about, war is a $2 trillion a year business, and much of the war machine is driven by profit, as we were just saying. And so that is why divestment is a key step in building the alternative global security system that World Beyond War talks about, is number one, or in conjunction with closing bases, we need to be taking the profit out of war. And that's why we're running campaigns all across the world to divest public and private assets from weapons manufacturers, military contractors, and war profiteers. Leah, would you answer about um Here, sure. Well, yeah, as far as bases go, um, there are um, some estimates as many as a thousand American military facilities uh, in uh, uh, like 160 countries, 100, or something like that, um, all over the world. So the United States uses the, the, this global power projection, and that's what the, the term that the military uses is power project, projection, um, to intimidate and threaten war um, with countries uh, to, to achieve their aims of complete dominance. Um, and so if those... And, and not only uh, do they, they, I mean, not only are they threatening the countries which they consider to be enemies, uh, it's also used to manipulate countries that the United States is allies with. For instance, in Norway, I was just speaking with a, a, an activist in Norway uh, who tells me that the United States is, is preparing to, to send more um, military assets to their country. Now, Norway is a member of NATO, um, but when they became a member, they had an agreement with, the, with Russia uh, that they would not ever allow permanent military uh, forces from the United States to be stationed on their soil. And that was kind of appeased Russia, uh, which, you know, rightly so, perceives uh, NATO as a big threat. 
Um, and so now the people in Norway are being uh, threatened, uh, blunt, to put it bluntly, um, by the United States, you know, that they, they must accept these military forces or, you know, they'll face some sort of uh, punitive measures from the United States. Um, so when, when your policy is, is, is world domination and power projection and, and threatening war, and you have the threats of war uh, uh, realized physically in these, these uh, bases that are on every doorstep, um, if, and if we could get rid of that, if we could bring these bases home, that would ease tensions for everyone. Um, I mean, if, if we took away the 40,000 uh, American troops that are on the, the, the border of South Korea and North Korea, I think that would go a long way to, to uh, you know, ease tensions there and, and, and promote uh, positive relationships and, and peace. So that's that's the overriding thing. I, I think it would uh, it it would really take a big chunk of the military aggression uh, that that the United States uses that is facilitated by these these bases. Yeah, another important point I would add is that all of this work helps to stigmatize the war machine to raise awareness about the institution of war. And so just as much as it's important to actually successfully close bases and successfully divest, another key point is just educating people about this. As we do this work, we're stigmatizing the war machine and debunking the myths of war. How well are the various anti-war organizations and anti-war individuals and anti-war actions around the world coordinating and working together and communicating? And in or I'd like to ask each of you if you have thoughts about that. And I'd like to pose a sort of dark hypothetical. Let's say um, the war between the United States and Iran, which I think we all agree is a horrific, incredible, surreal absurd idea, let's say this were to begin. I want to know that the different anti-war organizations around the world have some way to, to work together at a time when we may feel at, at a maximum of division, because when a war breaks out, that increases paranoia and you know, makes communication more difficult. How, how do each of the three of you feel we are doing, we, the anti-war movement around the world in terms of maximizing our capability to work together, respond together, and work in concert? Well, I, I would say that's a weak area. Um, you know, I, I, you know, David spoke just earlier mentioning the one of the divisions between anti-war groups was, um, you know, the, the feelings about the use of violence. Um, I think that's one thing that, that keeps us from working together more closely. Um, we, we also, the anti-war movement, as we've discussed, is I mean, war itself is, is, is a destructor of the, the, um, the environment. And they're very closely related. But we've had anti-war people, speaking from that point of view, have had enormous problems getting the environmental people to to see that and to join our efforts. So, you know, and I think until people realize that all of these issues are interrelated, um, just like uh, uh, the Poor People's Campaign uh, mentions and, and Martin Luther King, um, 
I think it's, we're, we're just going to have some difficulty coordinating our efforts. Now, if the United States should attack Iran, and God, I hope they don't do that, um, I, I think the world would react. Um, but, but, I mean, when, when we were threatening Iraq, there were millions of people all over the world in the streets saying, no, don't do that. And, and then we did it anyway. We, the United States did it anyway. Um, so I, I don't know. I, you know, this is a tough question. I, I don't think we coordinate very well. And I'm not really sure how, how to do it. Um, yeah, I'll, 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 I'd like to know what, what Greta and David have to say about it, too. To be frank, I, I would agree with that. And I think in my experience organize, as an anti-war organizer in the past year or two, I've seen a lot of friction between the different anti-war groups and sort of um, a lack of awareness about the need to even coordinate and collaborate. I've just, I've seen people do duplicative events, you know, very similar events just days after each other. And I don't even think they're doing it really consciously. I think there's just a lack of awareness about the fact that, hey, we should actually communicate within the anti-war movement. Um, and I think some of it stems from, you know, people wanting their own brand and their own organization and um, sort of getting possibly caught in, in the branding of their group rather than looking at the bigger picture of the, of the goal of anti-war. And World Beyond War stands out as a group that can unify the anti-war movement and unify other movements because of our messaging and the way that we talk about the intersectional nature of all of these issues and because we are a network of both chapters and affiliates, affiliates being existing organizations that come within our network. And so because of our structure and our messaging, I think that we do have that possibility of bringing people together. Well, I agree. Uh, very well said. I agree with what Greta and Leah have said. I, I think that uh, the, the weakness of popular movements and of the peace movement is, is pretty well known. It's not something we have to devote resources to telling people. I, I think on the contrary, uh, the peace movement is far more expansive and energized and effective than what you would think from watching television or reading corporate newspapers. Uh, and so uh, while it's many, many miles from where it needs to be and where it should be, uh, it is actually uh, more active, more engaged uh, than people think. Uh, that's always been the case, but it's always uh, worth pointing out. Uh, and and uh, I think that there are these notions that people don't really care about war and peace. Uh, but, you know, though that biggest day of activism ever uh, in 2003 was not that unique, and it was not that much of a failure. It, it moved much of the world against the war, moved governments against the war, moved the United Nations against the war, made it a crime, uh, made it uh, something that is, is treated as a badge uh, of, of horror to be avoided now. So that, you know, that the, the chief reason among many that Trump has not yet attacked Iran is because he doesn't want to be that guy who did something as stupid as attacking Iraq. Uh, people made it something stupid through their activism. In 2006, U.S. voters told uh, elect, election exit pollsters that their top reason for voting the way they did was to end the war in Iraq. 
uh, and they switched the the majorities uh, of the parties in the Congress, and their, the victors immediately proceeded to escalate the war on Iraq. Uh, and, and so the the results uh, are, are dispiriting for people. But the point is that the public takes war and peace very seriously, and it was a global public, and it was an interacting public of peace activism in the UK and in elsewhere in Europe and Asia and in the United States in 2013 that prevented the bombing of Syria, the massive bombing of Syria, which didn't end the war, was not a complete success, but was a major success. And, and there are so many like it that are never celebrated, never marked on the calendar. Um, so, you know, I, I think the, the important thing is to continue the work that Greta described that is, you know, the mission of World Beyond War from when it was launched, and that is to, to be global uh, and to be globally run and determined uh, and, and informed. Uh, and the more we build up chapters and affiliates uh, around the world, uh, we, you know, we have a, a board member in Iran, we have people uh, we're in touch with in Iran, uh, and, and anywhere else you could name on earth with people having signed the Declaration of Peace in 175 countries, the better prepared we're going to be. Uh, and I think we, we, we certainly have a, a fighting chance uh, at preventing any particular war you could think of. I'd like to follow up with that, um, David. But I'm talking about in a more global way, uh, you know, the Keller Brown Pact failed uh, because uh, because there was no enforcement mechanism. And right now, when the when the United States violates international law, there's no um, there's no punitive response. And now now you know maybe uh, politicians, American politicians, are voted out of office. But how can the world organize together to respond to these violations of international law? And that's, you know, that's what I, I'm kind of trying to figure out. Why does the rest of the world um, allow it's, this to continue? When if they would unite and work, uh, you know, impose sanctions on the United States for interest or boycott American goods or or invoke censure resolutions in the United Nations. Um, how, how can we get the rest of the world to, to push back against the United States in a coordinated, powerful way? And I think that's really gonna be the only thing that changes the policy of the United States because uh, for one thing, we, it's very difficult to make uh, change as a, as a it's very it's very difficult to have influence in Congress um, when when you know your your congressman won't even take your calls. I mean, it's very very difficult to have that kind of power. But even if we do, we vote them out of office, then we get another set of, of you know of Congress people that are, that also vote for the big war budgets and and won't you know won't negate the AUMF and whatever. So I mean, I think the bigger picture is what's really important and frustrating to me. Well, I, you, you, you can't, you can't declare the Kellogg-Brown Pact failed for lack of enforcement without expecting the usual uh, sixty-minute answer. Uh, but uh, <laughs> here it is. Uh, you know, the, the Kellogg-Brown Pact was used to prosecute the Nazis and the Japanese because they lost the war. 
to say that it failed would be like saying that, you know, that the, if the first time somebody was prosecuted for drunk driving, nobody ever drove drunk again. Uh, it's that level of failure, right? There hasn't been another world war. You can point to other factors. Uh, there are nuclear weapons now and so forth. But the Kellogg-Briand Pact made war a crime, stigmatized it for the first time in world history. Uh, and it ended conquest virtually. I, I mean, you, you can look at Palestine and a handful of, uh, of other places, but conquest uh, of nations uh, was made illegal and virtually ended uh, with, with legal boundaries dating being set at where they were when the Kellogg-Briand Pact was created. Uh, so that when they created the United Nations uh, as the successor to the Kellogg-Briand Pact and they built the building in New York, they very quickly had to rip it all up and put in three times as many seats because nations were just multiplying because it was safe to be a little nation now uh, and you wouldn't be conquered, by, you know, legally conquered uh, by the, the, the nearest uh, threatening big uh, nation uh, on the globe. So uh, the, the Kellogg-Briand Pact uh, succeeded in many, many ways that we are never told about uh, in, our, in our schools. And if you look at the International Criminal Court, now the new uh, regime, the, the enforcement mechanism that the Kellogg-Briand Pact was lacking, well, it, it doesn't just prosecute uh, the losers of wars, it just prosecutes Africans, right? So the problem with the Kellogg-Briand Pact and the problem with the International Criminal Court is not that one of them lacked an enforcement mechanism and the other one is an enforcement mechanism. It's that the world isn't set up democratically. It has the biggest warmongers on earth controlling the other places. And, and this is what you're asking, Leah, and I agree, this is the important question. How do we get uh, uh, other nations to stop bowing down before the, the threats of the United States. And to some extent they do. To some extent they violate U.S. demands for sanctions. Uh, but to a great extent, uh, they don't. To some extent they, they, they sign on and ratify banning all nuclear weapons. But many of the nations most under the thumb uh, don't. So this is, you know, this is part of why we have to organize uh, globally, but we have to, I, I think, also celebrate the, you know, the, the, the steps that have moved us in the right direction, even though we still have farther to go. I well, just wanted to set you up for that Kellogg-Briand yeah, question. I, there. <laughs> I, I actually, I actually want to respond in, in a different way. And that is definitely fascinating perspective about the, the Kellogg-Briand pact, but I do think from what you, you both were saying, we might get the idea that the United States is the only problem. And so I do want to point to a book I read by um, Peter Phillips called Giants, which I actually wrote about on the World Beyond War website, really pointed out that the global elites who profit off the military industrial complex are in United States, Europe, Pacific Rim. So it's not just the United States, but certainly the United States is um, sort of a main orchestrator of the of the uh, yes important military. point yes you're right and with that I think we we have so much more we could talk about but but we like to keep these to about an hour I think we raised a lot of questions maybe more questions than answers and that's probably appropriate for for where we are right now but I think this has been a great discussion I want to thank the three of you, and I want to thank everybody who's listening to this because we are all a team. We're all working together on this. 
If you're listening to this, please tell your friends about anti-war activism, and please tell your friends about World Beyond War. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.